0: This is a
1: download from BFM 89.9, the business station. By the Book on BFM
0: 89.9. Hello, everybody. You are listening to Buy the Book. I'm Lee Tree Lin, joined, as always, by my fellow lover of words, Shamila Ganesan. And together, uh, today, we are, of course, airing this in the week of Chinese New Year that is going to be happening on Friday and so we thought that it would be right to take a look through the lens of By the Book at the world of Chinese literature and it is such a wide world there's so much to talk about in terms of Chinese writing we knew we couldn't do it alone and so we are joined on the show today by Dr. T. Kim Tong who is the Associate Professor at the Institute of Philosophy in the National Sun Yat-sen University in Taiwan Um, Kim Tong thank you so much for speaking with us,
2: you're welcome.
0: So, um, as we said, I mean, Chinese literature is just such a huge topic. So, let's hone in then on contemporary Chinese writing. Um, what would you say are the themes and trends that are defining the scene at this moment in time?
2: Actually, yeah, right. It's a very huge question when we talk about uh, contemporary Chinese literature, but normally. Actually, we, we, we could start a bit um, further, right? Like something like modern Chinese literature. And then we have contemporary Chinese literature. It's quite difficult to periodize because, uh, you know, something happened in the past history. So after 1949, you have PRC, but then you have the Cultural Revolution. And at that time uh, we we could actually we could hardly speak about chinese literature contemporary chinese literature at that, at that time actually i would like to clarify a bit about you know the term chinese literature first because we talk about chinese literature means literature produced in china in chinese language but also uh, literature in chinese language so if we talk about literature in chinese language and then contemporary chinese literature you no know, there are some some differences in between, right? But uh, if you stick stick specifically to contemporary Chinese literature term, maybe we can talk about those literature produced after the Cultural Revolution. And then you have, uh, for me, uh, there's kind of uh, a boom, a literary boom after the Cultural Revolution, they have the the when they have opened up the country the society and the market a bit, and then uh, people begin to produce a lot of words not only literature but also films. If you remember the time with so many films from China coming out, so uh, in that boom, you have people like Mo Yan, Wang Yi, and Su Tong, uh, all these you know. In the, No in the more year, I think he's famous now because he, he won the Nobel Prize, right? Mm. Um, so people know about modern Chinese or contemporary Chinese literature because uh, there are a lot of translation work like the, uh, his generation. Of course, they, they would were, they were, they were reflect on what happened in the past uh, 50 years or 100 years um, from late Qing dynasty to the Republican period and then the PRC period, what happened to the people, the Chinese people in in the city, in country, and then uh, especially the family. So they wrote a lot about family.
1: You've mentioned people like Moyan, who is, as yeah, you said, yeah. a Nobel Prize winner. But I was, I was curious about um, this divide that we normally draw between, um, you know, quote unquote, high literature versus mm. popular literature or the non-literary literature. Um, what is popular literature when it comes to Chinese literature?
2: Uh, well, uh, when we talk about uh, popular literature, is a it's a very long tradition in in in. Um, In China, uh, especially modern Chinese literature, I would like to mention two genres because there are different genres of popular literature. One is called the martial art, wuxia. You know, people like uh, Louis Cha from Hong Kong.
3: The old man strikes the pieces of wood together a few more times and starts his story. This poem tells of villages where ordinary people once lived, raised by Jurchen tribes and turned to rubble. One such story concerns old man Yi who had a wife, a son, and a daughter, but they were separated from one another by the invasion of the Jin. Years passed before they were reunited and could return to their village. After making the perilous journey back to Weishou, they arrived to discover their home had been burned to the ground by enemy forces, and they had no choice but to make for the old capital at Kaifeng. He sings, The heavens unleash unexpected storms, People suffer unforeseen misfortune. Upon arrival, he continues, they encountered a troop of Jin soldiers. Their commanding officer spotted the young Miss Yi. By now, a beautiful young maiden and eager to capture such a glorious prize, he jumped down from his horse and seized her. Laughing, he threw her onto his saddle and cried, pretty girl, you are coming home with me.
2: So Hong Kong actually is the the biggest uh, factory, we've used the, the, the symbol, the metaphor symbol where popular literature is produced. they have a martial art uh, novels, they have a romance, modern romance and they have a detective story, they have uh, science fiction everything happened in Hong Kong during the 1960s. actually they are they are, they are, they are cultural people from Shanghai. So before the PRC, Shanghai is a very important center for popular literature, right? The martial art, uh, romance, love story, and social satire, everything, detective, yeah. So it's a continuation from China, Shanghai to Hong Kong. But uh, for mainland China, after PRC, it is quite difficult for, for popular literature to you know to produce. So, uh, so when we talk about popularity, you have to talk about Hong Kong, especially Louis Cha. He he established the the press called Ming Bo. The Ming Po uh, uh is, is a daily, and then he published every day so the reader read uh, about his you know the series of martial art uh, novels. So there's a way to 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 keep his, you know, the newspaper to survive at the time. That, because the popular literature is like that.
1: Right? I love Wuxia films, but
2: I have to say yeah. I've never
1: read a Wuxia novel. I think I would really like to pick one up. But
2: now, now you can read because there are translation of uh, nice. Jing Yong, which, yeah, <laughs> it's difficult to translate because, you know, it's about ancient time. <laughs>
0: In the names and the phrases will be very different. Um, you know, I, I love that we started off this um, this chat by really placing writing in the context of history and, 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 and politics and what happened mm-hmm. to cause, you know, the different kinds of spurs that we're seeing in the production of literature. And I want to extend that by looking at mm-hmm. diasporic Chinese literature. So people who are abroad but writing about China or writing in Chinese languages, um, and mainland Chinese literature people, writers who have chosen to remain and continue to work within China. uh, Is there a difference between the two?
2: Oh, yeah, sure, sure. But uh, by diasporic Chinese writers or writing, you mean uh, those Chinese writers outside China, including Malaysia? Yes. You know, it's it's a very difficult or complicated question, you know, that's why you know uh, in, in in the academic we try to to make a, diff, a big difference by uh, those you know nationalities uh, who are Chinese we call them Chinese literature but those written in in Chinese language but for example Malaysian well we tend to use the term sign of form literature you are not Chinese nationalities. Mm. But you, you you write in Chinese. Yeah, like Malaysian mm. Malaysian. Mm. But Malaysian Chinese that means they are they are they are Chinese but they are Malaysian nationalities. But they they write in many languages like Chinese, English, or you know, Malay, Bahasa, right? So either way. Actually we use the term Mahua also. I think you have heard of the Mahua, that means Malaysian uh Chinese, Mahua. Right, or for me I used another term, sign of Malaysian literature. So um, there's a long tradition because uh, I think the same region with the modern Chinese literature in the okay. 19, there's a May 4th movement during that period, May 4th, 1919. So there's a cultural uh, movement to 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 renovate, you know, they try to write in the vernacular. So there are people from from China to move to, at at the time, we call it Nanyang, the South Sea, right? Southeast Asia, especially Singapore and Kuala Lumpur, Penang. So uh, they have uh, newspapers, and then they write, uh, they wrote in the supplement, literary supplement of newspapers. So slowly and slowly, by 1930s, there are quite a number of Chinese writer, stay outside china but in Southeast asia to write in write about nangyang or Southeast asia and china but then after you know uh malaya became a country so they are all malaysian uh, Malaysian citizenship so they are considered malayan writers but they, they they wrote in you know in chinese language right so that's the same tradition but they diverge a bit when China become a country, PRC uh, and Malaya become a country. So uh, these these, uh, writers, they they, actually live in a multicultural society, multilingual, multicultural. So even they they write in Chinese, but if you read carefully, you know that the syntax, the vocabulary, I mean the theme, they are quite different from Chinese writer in China. And I think for the most important theme for the for Sinophone Malaysian or Malayan writer is identity, because of the 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 the, uh, the pluralistic uh, environment, right? You face a different ethnic groups, and then uh, different ways of you know, living style, and so on. Even food are quite different. So, uh, but identity is a very important issue. For the Chinese uh, writers in Malaysia and Singapore, and then and not to, to to say that uh, people different ethnic background they share the same history of colonial history, right? So it's very complicated world in in the in Saudi Asia, especially Singapore, Malaysia, Penang, then, and the languages also is a, is a different. If the, um, we don't know the Chinese when you when you when you meet on the street of Kuala Lumpur. Whether he speak English or, or whatever language, even even Chinese dialect, right? So, but uh, this is kind of asset because it makes the culture more, more, more rich. So normally they they, they would write about education and about you know the, the family, the history, how they moved to the ancestor moved from China to 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 Southeast Asia. And then how live in, 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 you know, the the different, even different political ideology for the Chinese community in Malaysia. So it's very, very uh, rich and very complicated if you you read more about the, uh, the Chinese writings from Malaysian writers.
0: On the show with us today, we have Dr. T. Kim Tong, who is a Associate Professor at the Institute of Philosophy in Taiwan's Sun Yat-sen University. After this, we are going to be continuing our conversation on Chinese literature and writing. It is a rich and complicated topic. Um, if you have a favourite writer who writes in the Chinese language, uh, let us know who that is. Let us know what works you enjoy. You can WhatsApp 18 789 and tweet us at BFM Radio. Brainy fancy material.
2: BFM 89.9.
0: Hello, everybody. You are listening to Buy the Book uh, with Lin and Sharmila. And uh, our guest today is Dr. T. Kim Tong, who is joining us because we are talking about Chinese literature, Chinese writing. We spent the first part of the interview um, really, I think, looking at the context uh, from which a lot of Chinese writing and writers um, began their, their creative. Work and so um, Kim Tong, I want to ask you: How much context do you think is needed to appreciate Chinese literature for people who are uh, not of Chinese nationality or descent? For instance, is there some context or some background that is required to really uh, deepen that appreciation? Yeah, but
2: actually, the, the most important part for Chinese literature uh, in the in general is the is history historical background no different, uh, especially the history of China from late Qing dynasty, that means big 19th century, where the, uh, the revolution uh, broke up and then the people move out for the you know, diaspora China, Chinese from China to the base and to Southeast Asia. So read a bit about, uh, read a short history of modern Chinese, something like that will give you. Uh, so why there are Chinese all over the world, right? question like that. And then why the they, 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 they wrote in English or why the you know, they, they write in Chinese or Malay? Yeah, they will, will help. So uh, first of all, try to grab a bit about, you know, Chinese history, modern Chinese history. Mm. And then about the history of Southeast Asia, which is more important because why there are so many different ethnic groups in in, in Southeast Asia, in Malaysia, in Singapore, in Indonesia, right? And then a uh, different cultural background. So these are the 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 I would call it the local knowledge of each community of each literature. Of course, language is a very important uh, key to understand, but uh, it's quite difficult to 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 require everybody to learn Chinese first in order to understand to read Chinese literature. So translation is a very important uh, you know tool. Actually, no, we we read. I also teach at the, the foreign languages department of uh, Sun Sunya senator University. So we, we teach and we we, we want students to read about European literature, but actually they read European literature in translation, in English translation. So we, we enjoy a lot about you know, Russian literature, you know, French literature, but not everybody could read French or Russian. The same with Chinese literature, right? So we all read uh if you if you for someone who 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 are not, you know, act, cannot access to the language, well, uh, read a good translation of the Chinese literature. is. I think it's a very, very uh, way, the point of departure or the gate to Chinese literature. And uh, I would say that um, Ch- China has produced a lot of translation because, you know, the after especially, you know, Mo Yan won the Nobel Prize, actually uh, true translated work. You know, so Gao Xingjian right, the other one, the other Chinese writer, diasporic writer, who won the Nobel Prize, the first, actually the first Chinese writer, in, right? And also uh, Taiwan also produced a lot of translation of, you know, those uh, Taiwanese or Malaysian uh, writer in Taiwan. And then uh, produced, uh, published by University Press in the States. So try to read Grab some and, and also, um, I think the anthology of collections of short story yeah, might be a good way to, to understand you know Chinese literature, whether it's Malaysian or or you know China or Taiwan. Yeah, I think, um, I think the, the, the people in the Mahua community they try very hard to. To, to try to translate their words into other languages like Malay and English. Mm-hmm. So yeah, try to 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 get hold of a copy, a collection. Start from a collection of a short story.
1: So the other thing that we've seen, um, particularly since the rest of the world started getting access to uh, Chinese literature, is um, Mm. many more politically active Chinese writers who um, quite subtly layer in critique of uh, the ruling regime. Sometimes subtle, Uh, sometimes not. Yes, (laughs) always subtly. Um, What role does politics play in Chinese writing?
2: Yeah, of course. uh, You know, this is a very, very important question. (laughs) I, I like that question you know, is everywhere, like it or not, right? It always play a very important role. So uh, the beginnings of modern Chinese literature actually is the beginnings of modern China. So literature is used as a tool to teach the people to wake up, to learn about, you know, the, the bad side of the, the dark side of the, the, the society. And then uh, why there's, there's a dark side of the society? Because of the politics, right? Political regime is good and then the society is good. <laughs> I mean, the same is every everywhere is like that. So the role of literature the function of literature is to help people to think, to see. And that's very important, right? Joseph Conrad said that, right? The, the, the function of literature is to make you see and then see more about, you know, what you see on the surface, deeper. So uh, in politics, of course, uh, Chinese politics is a very, very uh, long and complicated story from you know, the, the, the late Qin dynasty when Sun Yat-sen, the founding father of China, modern China, started the revolution until today. So politics is everywhere. So re- writers' respond to, to but for Chinese writers, they respond in a different way. Sometimes, you know, you cannot say what you want to say. So you need more complicated techniques like, you know, modernist writers, right, in a very symbolic way, or even like, you know, uh, surrealistic way. So that, you know, you cannot tell straightforward forward, oh, this government is bad, you cannot say that. You have to use a very complicated and metaphorical way to, to express themselves. So. Chinese writers are uh, I mean they are quite wise in in using these different techniques, yeah, in the in the in the past, even today. But uh, yeah, sometimes the 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 you know those writers who criticize the government, naturally you can you can see that the books are not published in China. Right? They publish in Hong Kong, Taiwan, in, in the States, somewhere. Yeah, that, that uh, this is kind of a, a, a gesture, that saying that literature is terrible because you no, know, you can do something, you can criticize government. So I don't want you to my people to read what you criticize me, right? So I think from this way, you can you can tell that it's the same uh, for Chinese writer in China or Chinese writer in other places. Yeah, they always try to, you know, as a writer, as an intellectual, as a writer, your your responsibility is to tell your reader that you know, what you think, right? You have you you should enjoy the total freedom to express freedom of speech, freedom to express. But in reality, no. Sometimes you are forbidden to do this, to say this, and say that. So uh, you cannot when you cannot publish, cannot. Cannot express freely in China, then they're probably somewhere else. That's why you have diaspora writer and the writer in China, which you know those who stay in China, of course they they have to stick to the political reality. And I think, uh, of course, they enjoy more freedom nowadays, but there's still a bottom line. You cannot step on the you know the bottom line, right? The same every everywhere. <laughs> Yeah. every country they they will they will draw a bottom line, right? If you ask for complete freedom of speech, well, uh, you have this sort of literature, has to struggle, has to fight, continue to fight. I think
0: so. <laughs> yeah, I, I agree. I think that that is something that um, writers around the world and throughout history really have struggled yeah. with. Um, I, I do want to know, I mean, we, we've we heard some names. Um, we've also been talking in uh, sometimes slightly more conceptual terms, but for somebody who is a newcomer to contemporary modern mm-hmm. Chinese literature who wants to start, um, where are some good places to go to? Uh, who are the names that are interesting you most?
2: Okay, like, uh, of course, I... I uh, I would introduce uh, Mo Yan, because Mo Yan, uh, not only that he, you know, he won the Nobel Prize, but he is himself a very good
3: writer.
1: As an author, my relationship to my works is like a female chicken and her eggs, and the audience today can witness all these chickens who are here to share their eggs. As authors, we can't write for the people, and we are not here to preach to people. We can't be elitist because we're not better than the average person. We can only represent ourselves.
2: And then uh, his contemporary, like Wang Yi, a female writer, or Yi Wang. In
4: truth, this could describe any and all writing. But because of its content, this novel is in a league of its own. Had it been a work of realism, something more concrete, stepping in and out of it would have been smoother because the world emerging from my pen and life as I actually experienced it would have been in alignment. But reality and fiction is sui generis. It divides existence into two parts, mutually obscuring and mutually indistinguishable because each part has its own raison d'etre. Our corporeal existence is very concrete and our store of sensory experiences is constantly being replenished. But in the world I was inventing with pen and paper, I would find from time to time that the well was running dry, and there were multiple crises. The metaphysical realm demanded even stricter logic. But where could I go to find it? When I'd exhausted all other avenues, I would go to the library with a big stack of paper.
2: Um, She wrote about Shanghai. One of her famous novels is The the Song of... Endless Tears or something like that, Changheng Ge, yeah. I think adapted into film also. So Wang Yi, Mo Ye, and then Su Tong, another famous uh, contemporary of Wang Yi. But uh, one of the more like uh, controversial, which I mentioned, uh, his work normally published outside China, more than in China, is Yang Lian Ke, and then of course there are, there are some poets, like Bei Dao, Duoduo, and they will stay outside uh, China for quite some time. And uh, because they are, they are more like, uh, people like Yang Ge Li in the States, Hong uh, Ying in, in Britain, basically they are, they are the post-1989 generation, where the literary boom of contemporary Chinese literature uh, began. No, Yen and Kim might be the next you know, Nobel Prize winner. Who knows? <laughs> yeah.
0: I I love that we um have such a clear list of recommendations and a great building point to start with. Um, Kim Tong, thank you so much for speaking with us today.
2: Okay, welcome.
0: Uh, you just heard that Dr. T. Kim Tong, who is an Associate Professor at the Institute of Philosophy in Sun Yat-sen University, uh, talking to us today about Chinese literature, Chinese writing and the context from which it springs. If you have a favourite writer, someone you really enjoy, if you would like to share some books, some collections, just any titles, um, you can WhatsApp 018-789-8899. You can also tweet us at BFM Radio. <laughs> That brings us to Footnotes, where today we're going to be discussing some news uh, from the world of Book Awards, something that we, I think, have established we have kind of a complicated relationship with. (laughs) However, the Costa Book of the Year was just announced and it was won by Trinidadian-born British writer Monique Roffey. She won for The Mermaid of Black Conch. The
1: flat dark sea broke open and the mermaid rose up and out of the water her hair flying like a nest of cables and her arms flung backwards in the jump, her body glistening with scales and her tail flailing, huge and muscular, like that of a sea creature from the deepest part of the ocean. She beat up and out, arcing through the air, so she flipped on her back. The men saw her head and her breasts and her belly and a pubic bone of a woman where it met the tail of a glistening fish so i love this um i love the synopsis that i've read i've never read money crofy um and uh, i've i only started hearing about this book and and when i heard that it won the award it got me quite excited because i I love, I've talked about this before, I love mythology, I love fairy tales, but I particularly love stories um, or mythology set or to do with the ocean or with the seas, um, with rivers and so on. And mermaid stories are one of my absolute favourites. Harking back to Hans Christian Andersen. What I think caught my attention was the fact that we often think of mermaid stories as being set in the West. Um, It's a very Western, sailors construct. Um, Mm. But these myths actually exist all around the world. And I think this is a great example of how that can be drawn out to actually tell stories about cultures we don't hear much about.
0: Absolutely, and I think mythology and fairy tales, and this is something again that we've talked about, is really one of the best ways through which to understand different cultures and the ways in which they are the same and the ways in which they're very different. Actually, one of my favourite, I I love mermaids as well, and one of my favourite mermaid facts has always been the fact that it was those uh, women-starved sailors essentially Mm. mistaking manatees for for, for (laughs) sirens and mermaids, and um, I've just always remembered Enjoyed that, but this story seems to be telling uh, something quite different. And I think um, the other key thing to note is that it's doing it in Creole, as opposed to um, in a more traditional English style of storytelling. And I think that that reflects her background, and it's something that she's she speaks about as well in terms of why she's kind of amazed that the book won because. I think considering the setting of the story, considering the the mermaid bit, considering the language, I'm not sure that she expected it to be a huge success. In fact, she said she thought it would always somewhat live on the fringe.
1: Actually, the story of just the book getting published itself makes it such an underdog. Um, you know, she had to crowdfund to get her book published. Um, again, something very non-traditional. And you wouldn't expect a book like that to catch the attention of these big international awards. And I love the fact that it's written in Creole. You know, I mm. um, we, we did Bernadine Evaristo recently, A Girl, Woman, Other. And... While that book isn't necessarily in a sort of straight Creole, um, it captures the cadences of the way different people from different cultures speak, and I'm very excited to read this book because of that. Because I'm curious to see what it does sound like. Um, But the other thing that that struck me about this book is the fact that there's just um, Costa, Costa. The Costas have a reputation for rewarding books that are. Popular, I think. Um, Popular, not necessarily in a mass mainstream sense, but books that are literary, but also are accessible and are Mm. easier to read than, um, I'm just going to say Lincoln and the Bardo, for instance, which is a very good book.
0: It's a good book, but not the easiest to read. Um, Well, I I find it interesting. Um, I I really... I really think that um, this idea of accessibility, popularity and easy to read is an interesting one to have in the context of the language. Because I think that for many people, um, entering a book with a dialect can be a tricky thing. We see this, um, certain writers deal with it almost exclusively. Roddy Doyle, for example, um, only ever writes essentially in um, in his version of or his written down version of what Irish people sound like you know. You also have someone like Marlon James who is much more in the Lincoln in the Bardo mold um, writing in, in that style and I think actually for some people that can be very alienating so you're right. I, I'm very curious to know um, how this book pushes past, uh, pushes past that, pushes past the ways in which people sometimes enter, see, language written down that doesn't look the way they expect it to and then go, oh, okay, I don't think I'm going to read this. I'm wondering whether it does it with that,
1: what we started with, the trope of the fairy tale, the trope of mythology, because these things are very um, very accessible, I think. A lot of people have familiarity with these tropes. On top of it, it is a love story. It also feels like, it also sounds like it's the story of a difficult love story. Mm, so it's interesting because the relative challenge of the language, I suspect is probably balanced out by the fact that um, at its heart, this is a very familiar tale.
0: Mermaids. I know. know, (laughs) Yeah. So I haven't read any of Monique Roffey's fiction. Uh, What I've read is her nonfiction. And that's the only one. She has one memoir from 2011. And it's called With the Kisses of His Mouth. And it was not one that I particularly loved, I have to say, not so much because of the quality of the writing. But it's my own fault. I mean, uh, it was one of those, we've talked before about uh, book sales, about, you know, those big ones where you pick up books that you might not normally do. And this really focuses on a midlife sexual awakening, you know, pretty much. That's what it is. After After many years in a relationship that was largely devoid of that kind of physical intimacy, it's about Exploring that in her midlife, and so I'm coming at it with that perspective. So when we talk about a book that, by all accounts, sound quite sounds quite sensual, quite romantic, but also quite dark, um, yeah, I, I'm just really interested to see how that translates into fiction, as opposed to the more personal um, and more mm, what's the word I'm looking for. It depends, right, on where you are in your life when you read nonfiction. Mm relatable perhaps, mm, perhaps. You,
1: you've got to be able to at least be on the same page as it were with the person writing the book but this book reminded me and, and this might just be a proximity thing because I very recently read Circe by Madeline Miller and um, while I don't think their styles are similar at all. The thing that the thing that uh, linked felt linked for me is this idea of a female writer taking mythology or, or folk tales and reimagining it and reimagining it from the point of view of um, females and from the and and sort of adapting a story that could, in its roots, have been fairly misogynistic. A lot of stories of mermaids are. Um, I'm interested to see how that's going to be changed as well.
0: Yeah, and honestly, anything that reinvents mythology in some way, retells it, reshapes it, is something that I'm keen on. So tell us whether this is a book that you are interested in reading. We're talking today about the fact that uh, the Costa Book of the Year Award has gone to The Mermaid of Black Conch, which was written by Monique Roffey, who is herself a Trinidadian-born British writer. And it sets um, the tale firmly in the Caribbean, which you would think has been done before and yet doesn't appear to. So what's up us your thoughts, 18 You can also tweet us at BFM Radio and write to us by the book at my.
2: Thank you for listening to this podcast.